Welcome to In the Know by Diane Schindler. This is Diane Schindler speaking. I'm the host of In the Know, the podcast show. I'm an author, a presenter, a solo nomad, a travel blogger, and a photographer. So this podcast show includes writing tips, travel tips, and my views of life from savvy and thoughtful to quirky and humorous. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm interviewing Sharon Sneer in Sydney, Australia. I met Sharon and her husband, Oren, at the Red River Resort in Oi Han, Vietnam, about two years ago. She and Oren were standing next to me at the reception desk when Sharon turned to me and complimented me on my scarf, and that's how our, our friendship began. We sat in the lobby of the Red River Resort. I swear, I think it was like four hours, I was riveted to their every word. And the next morning, I joined them again for breakfast. And I think we sat there and chatted for another five hours. It was just, I don't know, it was, it was a moment. We certainly connected. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sharon. She was born in Sydney, Australia, and began her professional life as an early childhood educator. Following the birth of her five children, Sharon changed professions and trained as a clinical psychotherapist and worked in that field for over 30 years while also giving regular local and international workshops and seminars. Her blog is called The Speed of Lightheartedness, and in it, she shares her philosophical and spiritual musings. Over the past 10 years, she's written three books and is now in the process of writing her fourth. Welcome, welcome, Sharon. Oh, well, thank you so much, Diane. I am thrilled to be with you again. Every time we speak, it's magic, don't you think? It is. And I know you find that magic everywhere. I don't find that magic that I find with you everywhere. So this is, this is just really special for me. And I'm <laughs> glad that we could work this out. You know, yeah. for, the listener, for the listeners, you need to know that Sharon and I <clears throat> have been keeping up. I think it's been about two years. We've kept up over the two years here and there. And then mm -hmm. about two weeks ago, we got on Zoom and had a conversation. And the Zoom had perfect clarity. It was a lovely, lovely conversation. We had no trouble with technology. And don't you know, we scheduled a conference call last week. And both of us sounded like we were underwater. But today, we have today. more magic, more magic. Yeah. Let's, not, let's not talk too much, except just accept that this is the most wonderful moment. And we are able to speak on top of water, not underwater. <laughs> I know, that's so funny. Well, tell me, um, we have a list of questions here. And I want to start by asking you, when did you start your spiritual journey? I think I began close to 1963, so that made me 10 years old. In 1963, my grandmother, who I loved very much, died, and that was a huge blow for my mom and, and, and for me. I really loved her, and I felt this huge emptiness without her. And I started to communicate 
with the brightest star in the sky after she died. And I believed that she was that star. And in November of that year, um, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And so that had a massive ripple effect throughout the world, not only in the States. And it got me thinking about life and death. And I began writing poetry at the age of 10. And I won my first prize in poetry at that time. Wow. Um, called uh, A Silent Graveyard. And not long after that, I believe in 1968, it was when Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. And those four deaths really put me on a path of mm -hmm. spiritual questioning. What's it for? Why are we here? Who are we? Where are we going? Where do you go? And I think those were the things that began my, my journey of trying to understand what is life. Wow. You were so aware. You were, it's like, I don't know if you use this term or not, but you're like an old soul. I think to be thinking about those things at 10 years old, my big deal was, could I win, could I win at playing jacks? That's all I cared about. I knew I couldn't. I was <laughs> and I could, that was probably my downfall. Uh. So, so I couldn't become more, become more spiritual and more worldly. That's really impressive, Sharon. Oh, you know, it just is what it is. And um, every one of us are born with a blueprint that they can either live into or live around or, or not leave that blueprint in this life at all. And I think I just stepped into it with those um, events and started thinking. I was a bit of a loner. I didn't have a lot of friends as a child. Um, I loved writing and still write. And everyone that's a writer is, in essence, an introvert. Maybe they love socializing in different ways, but I had this rich inner world. I see it in my grandchildren. I see it especially in one grandchild. She has such an, a rich inner life. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, still waters run deep. Yes. You were a preschool teacher for 15 years. So, so what made you change your profession and how did you do it with five kids? Wow. <laughs> I, I loved being a preschool teacher. There is a playful part of me and I learned so much from the authenticity and honesty of children. I still do. They're, they're the greatest teachers. And when my husband and I got together, we started having babies right from the beginning. <laughs> I, I used to joke that my eldest daughter watched our wedding. She was three months in utero from my belly button. So we really didn't waste any time having babies. And after I had five, I realized going to kindergarten and teaching other people's children and then coming home and being with my own was too much. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go back 
to study um, psychotherapy and counselling, which I did. And then I wanted to continue with a master's degree, which was offered over a three-year process of six weeks at a time at the University of San Diego. Oh. Um, with, with kind of the superstars of the Gestalt therapy world, Irv and Miriam Polster, mm-hmm. who were trained by one of the originators, Fritz Perls, of Gestalt therapy. And Gestalt therapy appealed to me because it's very focused on self-responsibility. It's focused on awareness and it's focused on the here and now. So we rarely talk about what happened when, unless it's something that is relatable to what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. And my husband, Oren, who, as you know, passed away 18 months ago, struggling with that loss at the moment, but managing, He took over and looked after those five children for six weeks every year for three years. Mm. So he just, whatever I needed and wanted to do in my life, he was my protector and my supporter. I could not have done it without him. He was, you know, I only met him um, when we were in Vietnam for those few short hours, but... He was a sweetheart. He just really was. And he admired yeah. you. I mean, I saw you and I were chatting together there and he was sitting across the table, you know, kind of leaned back and he was just loving watching you talk. It was, it was adorable. Thank you. Yeah. How precious for me. You know, he really loved me so much and I, him, we were best friends And um, I know people say you're so lucky to have had that. But the other side of that is when you have had that, when you have been the light of someone's life, um, the the loss feels more painful. I'm sure it does. Mm. It has to. I mean, I wouldn't know because I haven't. I've missed that part. I missed that boat for the light of my life I'm afraid as a husband so so I envy I envy those who have had that experience and I can imagine that you know the greatest the love the greatest the loss yeah I think so the greatest the grief I should say not the loss of the love but you know the greatest the grief And, and that, that complicated nuance of your grief and, of course, my five children's grief and mm-hmm. so many friends, their grief, it's all there in its own degree, in its own sometimes impossible, but descriptions, and they're all different mm-hmm. and they're all valid. So... Yeah, grief is very interesting. And I am writing this new book on, um, on not specifically only on grief, but on the journey we all can make to recreate meaningful, fulfilled 
lives after losing the love of your life or after losing your home in a fire or a flood or any well, life altering experience. Would you, would, would you mind, would you mind um, telling us about that? You and I have talked about it. I, I would, I would love for you to share it with our listeners. Orin died. Right. That was terrible. Of course, and that remains terrible, really difficult. But then what happened? Well, I guess it's still happening. It's so mm-hmm. early. Still. But I guess what happened for me is that I withdrew um, and started to recognize the, the panic and the fear of people that I knew and loved um, around me and not knowing how to hold the space, be, be with such deep, profound grief. I see. Uh-huh. And many people, there were many people that could do it. Certainly all my children, my sister, cousins, couple of friends, but the vast majority of people really did not want you to be falling apart in front of them and so when they said how are you and at the early stages there were hardly any words to describe how I was but I tried because I thought you know I wanted to share and then seconds later they would look at their watch or their phone and say you know I I just have to get to this appointment or I have to go shopping and I was left with this split open heart Mm -hmm. I started to recognize that isn't a good question that question is almost re-traumatizing someone in grief and so my daughter's my sons and I, we, we got together and we started to explore what would be a better question. In the end, it was very easy. In the end, I invited people, if they wanted to know something, to ask something specific. So how are you this morning? Did you sleep last night? Mm-hmm, Have you I eaten see. today? Mm-hmm. Can you go for a walk with me? Something so specific that you don't have to open yourself and and relive the pain every time someone asks you yeah. that. And don't you think from a from the from the person who asks the question, the questioner's perspective, I think that many people are are fearful of grief. They're fearful of your grief. And so they are uncomfortable sitting there are waiting for an answer to a general question. And so they need to leave. And I think it's almost the unconscious level. And I assume that, and my background is English. <laughs> it's, not, it's not psychology. So you can comment and correct me on this. But I think what happens is um, they worry that they're going to have that same grief. They may not have it at this moment, but they're going to lose someone or maybe they have lost someone and seeing you and seeing someone grieving is so, so much of a reminder of what has been, what could be that they just are completely uncomfortable. And again, I think it's not necessarily at the conscious level. Yeah. Look, 
I think it could go even deeper than that. And I would suggest that it is a fear of death, mm -hmm. their own and death completely, the, the finality of death. But it's also our culture's inability to sit with profound, deep feeling, whereas the, um, the wailing in Ireland and the traveling of the dead body through the streets of I don't know, Indonesia or some of the other countries brings life and death much closer together. Mm -hmm. And for us, we're such a um, hygienic type of country and world. Maybe not so much now with the virus. There's so much death. Death is much closer to all of us. But I think um, there's this existential fantasy disbelief that it can happen to me mm -hmm. and so i i don't that i think people just feel they're immortal they jump out of planes they go paragliding they do dangerous things if it gives them a thrill mm -hmm. but you know ultimately i think and this is part of my spiritual belief i think we all have a due by date and that whether you're you die at birth or before birth or when you're 104 or 68, you know, we have an amount of time to fulfill the blueprint, our sole purpose in this life. And of course, we don't all do that, but we can do part of it. And sometimes our lives are cut short, not because of our life, but because that life that died is also in service to others to wake up the world. You know, when I think of Twin Towers and mm -hmm. the Pentagon and all yeah. the lives lost, you know, the horror of that is an interpretation. What happened was people flew planes into public places and killed many people. That's what happened. What we made it mean is, is our own interpretation. But what it did offer the world, what those lives offered the world, was an opportunity to see our interaction and our relationships and our behavior in a different way. And, you know, I think humanity gets some lessons quickly, but it's always two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. And depending on the fear of the political leaders at the time, we either take the opportunity or we miss it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's very profound and it's certainly appropriate now. We kind of diverted from our outline, but boy, we've had good discussions and I appreciate that. So within this conversation already, you referenced 
the notion, the fact that you're writing a book about grief, and that kind of took us off on a wonderful tangent. I'm going to bring us back and ask mm -hmm. you about your first book. Now, your first okay. book was a system you created called the 12 Levels of Being. Can you share yes. with us a little about that body of work? And I believe you've taught this notion of the 12 levels of being in many different countries. Is that correct? Yeah, many countries. And every time I've taught it, I have learned something more about it. So, you know, we teach best what we most need to learn. Yeah, so that's clearly true. this was something I needed to learn. So the 12 levels of being is a system of energies that I teach in a linear fashion, but are actually spiraling energies, which is harder for people to, to grasp. So they are like 12 archetypes in a way. And each of these 12 levels, when you move through them, it's like the maze of your life at this moment. So at any moment in your life, no matter what is happening, you will be moving through or stuck on one, two, three, four levels of being. So the levels begin with choice. And choice manifests in two ways. Choice can be made through love or fear. And that's, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. But what people don't recognize is when you are making a choice that you don't often think how you're making it. You, you make it unconsciously. So if you decide to go for a walk on, you know, on the days that, you know, we're all in lockdown, you decide to go for a walk what what are you choosing that from is it choosing it from fear of putting on weight or getting you know um tired and getting depressed or is it choosing it from the love of self and wanting to experience nature and get out and lift your spirits and maybe be of service to same action different reasons and every level of being begins with choice and each level of being is divided into four aspects it's the personality the soul uh, no, personality emotional mental and spiritual aspect of who we are so it's a little bit complicated as a as an abstract way of discussing it, which is why I'm writing this book, to sort of ground it so that we can live fulfilled and meaningful lives throughout all of life's um, unexpected challenges. And we all have those, all of them, all of us. Yes. Well, that's really, I can't wait for you to finish that book because <laughs> me too <laughs> <laughs> you too you know i teach the way i teach is i often fall on my face and make a whole pile of mistakes and then when i manage to get up and 
look behind me and see, gosh, that's how that happened. That's when I teach it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it wasn't like that. But that's how I do it. That's yeah. great. So you're not afraid of making mistakes, obviously. Oh, uh, well, you know, I can't help it. I just <laughs> do. I just make mistakes. Yeah. You know, I, I fall or I say something that's completely incorrect sometimes or I, um, something happens in my life and I attend to it without thinking of a consequence and the, the consequences of not thinking is what I eventually recognize and then I teach it. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. when I met you in Vietnam, you were telling me about a book that you had written and it was really about your mother. It was a memoir, but it was about your mother and it was called Looking for Lionel. Isn't that the title of it? Looking for Lionel? It is. And yeah. I bought that yeah. book, of course, and read that book and I bought it um, as a Kindle because mm -hmm. I was traveling and it's really such a good book because... Uh, and you can, I don't want to give any spoilers here. You can talk about what you do in that book. But what I thought was good about the book was not only the story about your mother and the story about your relationship with your mother and her experiences in this nursing home, mm -hmm. but it was rich with not only, gee, this is what happened, but this is what happened and this is how it affected me and this is how it affected my mother and this is how it affected us. So yeah. it's a personal, your personal perspective of what, you know, how your mom existed in this nursing home and how it changed you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, that's, it's been two years and I remember the book. Um, so that's at least what I remember yeah right now but i loved it because of it it was a teaching you know i learned so much when i read that book so tell us about it well you know my mom uh was um a very social lady she i was born in the 50s and the the group the social group that she belonged to went out for dinners nearly every night and they went to um charity balls and what they wore and how they had their hair done and their nails and um, those the images of who you are was very important to her very important being young being beautiful and she was she was beautiful and as she began the process of becoming initially confused and you have to accept that it was about 20 years of a journey. So the beginnings, we all thought she was just being her eccentric self. And she had a few catchphrases, like, you know, she'd walk up to somebody and saying, darling, whatever you're doing, don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and people would love that, you know, they yeah. would just look at her and say, okay. So she remembered those phrases. And so she was able to cover up her forgetfulness, her confusion, her sense of worry. And she was very private. 
she really didn't share her personal life with friends, although they did share theirs with her. So eventually when things got so bad um, and we realized we were keeping a secret that the weakest person in our family was holding, holding us all by a short lead, I realized one night that this isn't working. And she and my dad had had an argument on their way to my place. <clears throat> and I was with my mother in the kitchen. She was drying some cups or something. And, I, and she was crying. And I said, do you want to know what's happening? And she said, yes, because she couldn't get it out. She said, your father. And then when he, and, and I know, and, and I can't under, and then I, and it was all broken sentences. Mm -hmm. So I said to everybody, there was my family there, let's sit down. Mummy wants to know what's happening and I'm going to tell her. And of course, everybody just was stunned. And, yeah. and um, my dad sat down. He did not know how to do this. And I turned to my mother and I said, Mummy, I'm going to tell you what's happening. And she said, yes, please. And she had this intensity. She used to be an actress and she could really look intensely at you. And I said, you have a condition. And that condition means that you won't remember even this conversation in a little while. But this condition means that every single thing you will ever need, we will make sure you have that we will look after you always and forever. And she started to cry and she just said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody. And within, I don't know, two minutes, the whole conversation had been forgotten by her, but something shifted. And I realized in order to communicate with people that have dementia, we have to talk to their soul not to their physical being anymore mm -hmm. because communicating with someone who has dementia is a very way of different way of communicating from others because most of their understanding doesn't come from what's being said but how we say it from our body language attitude eye contact our tone of voice touch warmth kindness they all contribute to good communication with someone who now is no longer the person they used to be. Mm -hmm. So I wrote about it. That's beautiful. That is really beautiful, Sharon. Thank you. You know, I talked to my mother recently and she's nine, she's 93 mm -hmm. and she is, um, has dementia and she's in a nursing home and, um, of course, I chat with her and I went to visit her, but can't visit her now. She's in Ohio. I'm in Florida and I'm locked down. But, um, you know, there was a little trepidation when I called. She was, she didn't remember me, but she just had dinner and she had a full belly, she said. And I said, what did you have? And she started laughing. And this is the first time when I've asked her a question, that she, which is, I shouldn't even necessarily be asking, but when I asked her, what did you eat? She started, she said, now, why would you ask me that? You know, I can't remember. Oh, it was the sweetest thing. And it was, um, she was just so cute. It, it was bittersweet for me because she was really happy and I want her to be happy, of course, yeah. but yeah. 
I missed her so much. So it was more, it was a bittersweet conversation for me. Absolutely. And, but your, your description of how you handled your mother with your family was just beautiful. A very selfless, selfless approach to help her feel safe in, in a time when it's, when everything is gone in a way. Well, you know, it, it, you bring me to remembering one of the questions I suggested never to ask someone with dementia is similar to what we talked about earlier in this conversation. And I, I say, never ask someone with dementia, how are you? Because mm-hmm. it's too difficult a question. And if you can practice not asking that, then you can be better at not asking what did you do? What did you wear? What did you eat? Mm-hmm. Or what are you doing tomorrow? But bringing yourself only into the present. Mm-hmm. And the present, you will have this wonderful, intense dialogue, like what are you wearing today? Mm-hmm. And who's sitting next to you? And I hadn't seen her for a long time. And I went to see her last, a few months ago. And she was afraid of me. And she had just in the nursing home. And I think she was afraid of everything. And since that time, they've given her a little medication to help her relax a little bit better. And she had just moved into, moved into this nursing home. Anyway, I was just really having trouble because she was looking at me like, who are you? You're going to take something away from me. And she was just shaking. She was scared. And so I started singing. And I said, do you remember Tisket a Tasket? And suddenly we were singing old songs. And of course, she remembered the lyrics better than I did. And she just mm-hmm. softened up. So, And I had read about or I had heard about people with dementia remembering old songs. So it was really a good opportunity for me. To- yeah, I love that. And, and of course, when my mother could no longer speak, she could still sing with us. And so the song that my sister and I would sing separately to her was you are my sunshine yes i sang that with my mother too yes we did it as a conversation so i would sit and look at her and say mommy you are my sunshine and she would say my only sunshine (laughs) and then i would say you make me happy and she would know the next line when skies are gray and we would have a conversation line after line of that song. And it was really a deep and beautiful conversation thanks to a song that was embedded in a part of her brain that hadn't been affected by Alzheimer's. Well, I really hope um, the listeners get a chance to buy your book. I'm going to have a link to, to where you can buy Listening to Lionel. Look, looking for Lionel. Looking for Lionel. Sorry about yeah. that. No, that's okay. <laughs> looking for Lionel. And Lionel was your father's name. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because my mom was always looking for him during those difficult years when she and he were still living at home together. But um, there is a little twist at the end of the book, which I won't spoil for anybody. But looking for Lionel ended up having multiple meanings. Yeah, it was, it was well done, really well done book. I've also purchased a little book of everyday miracles. 
that you wrote, your last published book. Is that correct? That's your last published book. Yeah, it is. It is. It's the little book of everyday miracles. And you quote an old Chinese proverb, a proverb, which says the miracle is not to fly in the air or to walk on water, but to walk on earth. Can you tell us what this means to you as well as, as we all undergo profound changes and grief and hardship right now with the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. Well, I guess the way I can describe that, uh, to explain that in the way I understand it is to quote something else. And this is a quote from Walt Whitman. And he says to me, he says, to me, every hour of light and dark is a miracle. Every inch of space is a miracle. Every square yard of the surface of the earth is spread with the same. Every cubic foot of the interior swarms with the same. Every spear of grass, the frames, limbs, organs of men and women, and all that concerns them, all these to me are unspeakably perfect miracles. And what, what those two sayings mean to me is that life is really a miracle. If we look close enough, and this is an opportunity with COVID-19 to shrink our world to a place where the smallest experience, the smallest insect, the smallest leaf becomes a significant part of your day if you stop and be present with the miracle of its existence. So there is something very precious about the opportunity to be in a world where our world has become much, much smaller for each individual person in lockdown. Our world basically is a walk around our location if we're allowed and our home. Mm -hmm. And for those of us that have a home, as my daughter always says, to be in your home at this time is a privilege mm -hmm. because there are many, many people that do not have homes, do not have shelter and are still as susceptible to becoming ill as every one of us. So if we can use this time, and we are, there's, a, there's waves of kindness and care coming from so many different directions into our small world where we have a phone, a computer, an iPad, the shops delivering your food, there's just an incredible opportunity to see what we have missed in our lives for so long. And we have time. Exactly. And of course, time is a man-made concept. Yes, I know. The way we understand time, but now we have timelessness. Because we don't know when this is going to end or where it's going to take us. So, but we can also waste the opportunities that we've got. We have so many choices here. But yes, we have time. Time to 
to do what we haven't been doing for so long and time to connect in a way that we wish we had and now we can. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you and I were chatting a few days ago and you said something that has that resonated with me and has, has stuck with me just these last couple of days, but uppermost in my mind, because I was talking about, gee, I want to move to Portugal and this is kind of changed my plans. You know, I was planning to move there by June and now I can't. And I mean, I wasn't that, that upset about it. I was just commenting on it. And, but I talked about the fact that I'm, I um, have a suppressed immune system slightly, although I'm in denial about that because the medication I'm on and therefore, you know, I need to be locked down and gee, I'm not even sure when I'll be able to, um, get back out into the, to the world again. And you said, well, you are having the same sort of experiences concerned about possible health issues. And so you have decided that you are going to be locked down for 18 months because it's not until you get the shot. Will you feel safe to go out? And then as a result of that, you said very calmly, you have re reviewed and, and changed your life. Yeah, I think you said that. And so now you have different goals for these next 18 months. Well, everybody does. I mean, everybody has different goals. I don't remember that specific. What I, I didn't say I'd be in lockdown, but I did say that um, I probably would be practicing physical distancing for until such time as I am able to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because um, having uh, asthma all my life puts me in a more you know, tenuous situation with the lungs. Mm -hmm. But what I do remember in that conversation is that we were talking about the words isolation. Oh, yes, and isolation and separation. Yes. So what I do remember is that, and I said that um, for me, separation is an illusion. And um, that was a point of the conversation that you wanted to hear a bit more. So do you want to hear a little bit more about I that? do want to hear a little bit more. And let me tell, let me explain that when I left, I'll say this quickly, when I left the United States over about four years ago to travel the world, I um, also started writing the first novel, and the first novel was based on some of my experiences, but it is truly fiction. And through that process of leaving and traveling on my own, knowing that I would be traveling by myself, that there would be some isolation. But what I described is the difference between isol, and so I was looking at isolation and separation, and I put those two on the continuum for the for my for my own benefit. And I was saying that um, isolation is something that I chose, and separation was something that I thought wouldn't wouldn't necessarily happen even though I was isolated, if that makes any sense. But the irony is that that was the theme of my book because I was experiencing those two sort of concepts at the same time. And here we are now. And the notion of isolation and separation is, is in my head again more you know, it's just like right in my consciousness again. And that's how we got onto this conversation. So yes, that's why I want to hear more from you about those two concepts. Yeah. 
I think also um, part of that emerged out of my recent trip to Italy. Oh, yes. I planned to live there for three months and experience absolute anonymity, which is something that you know about from all your travels. Mm -hmm. But I needed that because I could no longer deal with being the one whose husband suddenly died in six seconds. I just needed to be free of people's um, thoughts about me, their knowing me, their kindnesses, everything. I just wanted to be away. And I wanted to know how I could um, explore myself in the absence of my 40-year relationship. So I arrived in Italy on the 31st of January before, I think, I don't think I'd even heard the word COVID-19, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that I would love my apartment, but in the, I was only there for six weeks and how I left was really miraculous, but I had to be isolated quite a few weeks of that time because everything was closed and people were terrified of getting um, sick. And I was in Northern Italy and it was where the virus has really started to take hold. The separation, I never felt separated from even my family that were in Australia because I think separation can be understood more in um, an energetic sense, not necessarily just physical. That mm-hmm. I don't feel separate from the ones that I love, even though I was many miles away. You know, when my daughter left to go and live in Israel, we all gave her a little bracelet that we made, the family and friends, and we said distance is but an illusion. And, and separation for me is an illusion. Even if you take it to the um, smallest sense of quantum physics, where every, every animate and even inanimate object is a, a combination of vibrating molecules of energy and our our skin bag that holds us together doesn't hold us separate from the world in which we live. There are energies, electrical energies, people might even call them auras, that touch other things and touch each other all the time. So we can never be separate. We are one with this world, not ever separate from her. So I think isolation is the more personal um, way of putting yourself in a small space. You know, when people are in prison, they're put in isolation. But you can't be separated because the world that we live in is a living, breathing organism of which we are a part. So you can't Mm -hmm. be separate. Mm -hmm. See, this is why... I was and I am riveted to everything you say. (laughs) I just, 
<laughs> I mean, you, you have so, such a great way of explaining things and wisdom. So I really appreciate it, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. Also, uh, we didn't have a one-way four-hour conversation in Vietnam. It was definitely back and forth. I was riveted also. It was magic. Yeah, it was. really magic. Yes, yeah, such fond memories. And it, the irony is that you came up and said, I love your scarf. Well, <laughs> and you said, oh, I don't know how to wear scarves. No, I said, I don't know how to wear yellow. And you said, oh, you just put a red scarf. That's it. right. Your memory is so good. That's right. <laughs> you said, I don't know how to wear yellow. Well, I was wearing this big mango, yeah. big mango dress that I still have that I bought in Vietnam. I had right. made in Vietnam and I had a red scarf over it. Anyway, it was just dear. You were just so dear. It was an honor to get to know you and Oren on the, the shoot, those, um, sh- few short short hours and so is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we before we leave i i can feel that our conversation has found a resting point Mm -hmm. so i think i think we've done well (laughs) i I think i think so too yeah i want to i want i want to see you again sometime we uh, will in the flesh in the real flesh or wherever, once, once the planes are flying, crisscrossing across this beautiful planet again, I will find you. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I, Portugal just started today um, reinstating flights, but it's way too soon for me. Mm. Um, so I'm having a, a fine time, frankly. I think those yeah. four years of my traveling solo nomad, when people said, did you, get, did you ever get lonely? And, and actually, I did not. Mm-hmm. And it prepared me for this lockdown, this hunkering down right now. And I'm um, enjoying it and writing a lot, writing like a fiend, but also thinking about the things that you have shared with me in the last couple of weeks so I don't miss an opportunity. No, you don't. And I don't want to miss an opportunity for growth. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't want to miss it either. So well, thank you. Um, well, thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Diane. It's been such a pleasure and an honor. And um, we will speak again soon, I hope. We will. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to In The Know. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing and sharing it with your family and friends. You can like this episode, leave a comment, and even add a rating. Your support is very important to the success of In The Know. Thank you for listening and see you next time.